everyone. Welcome to this special episode of Selected Essays, where Zach and I are bringing you our top five moments from season one. Zach, what's been your favorite moment so far? I don't know. There was a lot of really good moments this season. Um, so many stand out to me. But I know that you had a great conversation with uh, Siri, who you've done some academic work on as well. So I'd love to, I'd be curious what moment from that episode really stood out for you. Yeah, it was equal parts exciting and terrifying to talk to Siri about Simone Weil's human personality. Uh, Siri's work has really influenced my own. I've read everything she's written. Uh, I have a dissertation chapter on her work. Um, and so it was a bit surreal to be able to talk to her and also talk to her about someone who features in a different chapter of my dissertation. Um, but I think Simone Vey has had this sort of renaissance in recent years in which she's being written about more. She's being read a lot more. Um, and Siri just really spoke to kind of why why that matters and why she's matter why she matters right now and why we might be interested in her at the moment. And at the end of the clip that you'll listen to, we hear her say about uh, how Simone Vey points us to this idea of being part of a fragile connective tissue. And I really love this because it's something that preoccupies Siri's work as a whole. She's really interested in intersubjectivity and how we're connected and interconnected how we influence one another and how we can all make each other's lives a bit easier and a bit better. Um, and so I loved how in this passage, you really get a sense for not just why they matters today and why Siri reads her and why contemporary society can benefit from reading her more, but also kind of what's motivating Siri's work as well. The contemporary interest in Vail ha- always has to be draped in our own perceptions, right? Um, we are in a world of group and, you know, what is called often identity politics, if you will. Uh, And I think this has become fractious, (laughs) a fractious reality, right? So that people are submerged in an identity. And what Vail is saying is that Really, it is impossible for the group, especially political groups, to speak for, you know, the the deep individual experiences of, of human beings. And to avoid affliction, she is asking for every human being to have the room and time to cultivate attention. That is something that I think most people living in contemporary Western societies feel a profound lack of, right? And that individualism the self, the great (laughs) padded self of neoliberalism, you know, which was something that she did not know about. She was dead before the real rise of neoliberalism, where the self is everything and collective life has been uh, battered to pieces. The you know, commerce or exchange, buying things, 
to pad the singular self or advertising on Instagram your perfect singular life, I think has proved to be part of the malaise of contemporary culture. So when people read someone like Vail, who is arguing for the throwing off of that obsession with the self, you know, I did it, I made myself the self-made man. This, this is an, an old thing and it repeats itself, in a, especially in U.S. culture, but certainly in Western culture in general. And now because of globalization all over the place uh, that we make ourselves, right? That we literally are I don't know how we do that. As last time I checked, we were all born out of the body of somebody else, right? We were not only born out of the body of someone else, we just stayed inside that body and we had to be cut away from that body. This is me, of course, not Vail. She never says anything about (laughs) pregnancy and birth. (laughs) But it's my uh, uh, little sounding board. And this, I think, is only a further argument for the a form of binding one person to another and as we all know there are now philosophers that are talking about a much larger kind of binding uh to other species not just our species being uh but the recognition that we are part of a fragile connective tissue. Zach, I know you really enjoyed our conversation with Garth Greenwell. What stands out to you from that episode? There was a moment during our conversation with Garth um, where he's talking about his essay on moral education and praise of filth. Um, which is about Philip Roth's Sabbath Theater. And you asked Garth to say a little bit more about filth. um, And he had a really interesting response. I think the desire for purity that often accompanies a kind of moralistic sense of what moral engagement with others means is a really, really dangerous desire. And, you know, my basic sense of human life is that we are all neck deep in the shit. That, like, innocence is not available to anybody. Um, and that, you know, if our starting point is we're all neck deep in the shit, then, you know, the sort of endeavor of moral relations with others becomes not scorekeeping or sort of where do we rank in relation to each other, but sort of how, given this situation, how can we live together in a way that allows us, if not to flourish, at least to do minimal harm. Um, and that means acknowledging that filth is part of what we are. I was really struck by Garth's critique here of moral impurity and his suggestion that instead of pursuing some sort of kind of lofty call to like moral rectitude, which we hear all the time, that maybe we should set a kind of more humble assumption about how flawed we are as human beings and how this might be the grounds for a different kind of moral relation, um, one that starts with patience or sympathy or compassion instead. 
Oh, I think we both really enjoyed talking to Leslie because she has a personal relationship with the writer that she selected. Yeah, I think that was like a really rare thing. We didn't speak to many writers this this season who actually were taught by the writers um, whose essays they selected. And so I think one of the moments of the whole season that really stands out for me um, is our discussion with Leslie Jameson about uh, Charles D'Ambrosio's essay, Documents. Um, so in every episode, we asked our guests to read a passage from the essays out loud. And I found that this added a kind of different dimension to our discussions because we were talking about rhythm and tone, which is something that you you read in literary criticism, but you don't often get a sense of unless you're reading the essays out loud. And there's a really, really difficult moment in the conversation that I remember. And I want to warn listeners here that Leslie reads a section of Charlie's essay that has a very explicit description uh, of the moment of his brother's suicide. But Charlie does something really special here, which is that it would be in for many people would be kind of unthinkable or impossible, which is that he close reads his brother's suicide note and kind of tries to understand something about the last moments of his brother's life through the rhythms of the prose and the choices of punctuation. And as Leslie tells us, that kind of textual attention becomes its own form of love in a way. Um, it's not close reading as a kind of clinical exercise or a removed kind of gesture but a way of keeping his brother alive and kind of reckoning with love and loss and grief. My brother Danny wrote his suicide note in my bedroom. And then after a Kajura that I know exists because he had to put down the pen in order to pick up the gun, he shot himself. For some reason, I've always been concerned about the length of that lapse, whether he reread what he'd written or stared dumbly at his signature his name, the final piece in a puzzling life he was about to end before he pressed the gun to his head and pulled the trigger. Most suicides go about the last phase of their business in silence and don't leave notes. Death itself is the summary statement and they step into its embrace hours or days before the barrel is finally raised to the roof of the mouth or the fingertips last feel the rough metal of the bridge rail. They are dead, and then they die. But Danny wrote a note, or not so much a note as an essay, a long document full of self-hatred and sorrow, love and despair. And now I'm glad that I have it, because this way, we're still engaged in a dialogue. His words are there, and so is his hand, a hand I'd held, but more important, one that left words, like an artifact that are as real and physical to me as the boy who, at 21, in a November long ago, wrote them. So why, why this, this passage in particular? Yeah, um, it's so, I, I, I have probably read this essay, um, I don't know, 30 times, 40 times, so many times, and it, it, it never stops. Um, just being so deeply moving to me and really moving to hear it aloud um, in, in part because so, so much of its force and expressive substance um, just dwells in its rhythms. Um, even like that, just, you know, reading the last sentence of that paragraph aloud with all of its commas, you feel um, a voice really struggling to speak um, to say something that is very hard to say, even as it's glad to be saying it. I find that to be one of the most moving um, 
parts of that passage and really the whole essay that this idea of engaging with the words someone left behind as a way of staying in conversation with them. And, and in particular, in this case, a way of staying in conversation with the dead. Um, I think I chose this passage because to me, it encapsulates this great tenderness at the heart of the essay. And it's a, um, a tenderness that is like bound up in that kind of close critical textual attention. I think there's a way that sometimes we can think about um, archival engagement or treating life as a kind of text to be close read or treating, you know, um, the, the whole premise of treating very, very personal objects as, as if they were texts, as if one were almost like a literary critic of one's own life or one's family history that that there's an idea maybe that that would be a kind of distancing or clinical approach, but here it's so absolutely the opposite. Um, this close textual attention to his youngest brother's suicide note becomes not only the the words themselves, but the conjuring of the process of writing them and its temporality and its physicality and its beat by beat, um, putting down the pen and picking up the gun, the pause in between, like all of that close attention comes so clearly from love and from grief and from the way that grief and love produce a desire to understand, a desire to kind of do the impossible, which is to be with his brother in that moment, um, to be with him kind of even feeling just the texture or the chill of the, of the gun or feeling what it felt like to write his name one last time, trying to feel what it felt like to be bewildered by the life that had like delivered him to that moment. Um, that kind of aching movement, self-summoning towards an impossible proximity is, um, it's just a, 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 a tremendous, um, a tremendous act of emotional expression. And, and it's, it's happening right there in that paragraph. It's happening in its words and it's happening in its rhythms. And, um, to me, it's like, yeah, that's, that's what writing can can be. Another episode that really stuck out for us was one with uh, Karina Delvaya Shorsky, where we talked about Samuel Delaney, who I think you and I had both encountered as a science fiction writer, but were less familiar with as an essayist. Yeah, and here I am asking Karina whether or not Times Square Blue is good sex writing or not. So what Samuel Delaney's doing is traveling around to the porn theaters of New York City and detailing what's going on in these porn theaters. Um, and I've read so many articles lately, maybe it's tweets, maybe it's a combination of both, where it's asking, okay, is this writing good sex writing? And I feel like the only novel I've read as of late that's received praise in this regard is Lillian Fishman's Acts of Service. Um, but Karina does assure me that no, this Times Square Blue is also good sex writing. And so listen to what she has to say on that front. There is a like um, kind of shadow life to Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, which is like the shadow question of the place of women. Um, and the way he engages it, I find really interesting and like kind of satisfying. Um, one is like that, you know, he basically credits these women editors for being the ones who like were expressing the real curiosity about this. And it like, it goes along with, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, why did the women, why was it women editors that wanted that? I feel like, 
at least speaking for myself, like I want to see, I feel like it's in my interest to hear every kind of sex described. Like somehow, like even if it's not the kind of sex that I have, like as this is definitionally, like um, I feel like the without narratives like this, the like vision of sex that we're left in, left with is like, so like heterosexual and like misogynistic and also just kind of like unelaborated, like um, abbreviated and like illiterate as like so many, um, like in terms of like that, that, that a lot of the sex ideas about sex we're exposed to are abbreviated and illiterate, um, like in terms of like vis-a-vis like um, what, a woman's experience of sex might be. Um, And I think that's actually true for everybody, like that we're all alienated by like the kind of dominant visions of sex that were or narratives of sex that were given, but like maybe possibly like as women or, and certainly as queer people, like any other description is going to be like a form of liberation from like the hold that those like dominant narratives have on us. Um, so maybe that's what the women were hungry for. Yeah, I'm totally fascinated by the fact that women editors insisted that uh, Delaney incorporate all of this sex writing because I don't know if the essay would exist without it. Once you start reading it, it's just an abundance of this. And second of all, as Karina's saying, um, there's this want from a woman for a certain type of writing that Delaney's providing, but that they're not finding anywhere else. Um, and so, yeah, I think this essay is great in that regard. Zach, I love that you had friends who had taken classes with Anne Fadiman, our second guest on Selected Essays, because you were able to get some anecdotes about her uh, and her as a teacher and what she says in the classroom. And I know there's one we got to talk with her about in this episode. Yeah, it was really great because one of the themes of the season, which I wasn't really expecting, was that we would get to talk to these writers, many of whom are teachers, about how they teach these essays. Um, And I remember hearing this great anecdote about Anne which is that in her writing class, she draws a distinction between swamp drivers and diamond polishers. Of course, I don't think that this typology um, is perfect and it doesn't cover everybody. But I do think that most writers, and this is, is just about the writing process, are they the sort who would become uh, paralyzed or blocked um, couldn't go on to the second sentence unless they had already made the first one pretty much perfect? Or are they the sort who um, need to zoom along really fast um, uh, because they would be blocked if their momentum was uh, halted? And so the swamp drivers need to, I mean, they'd sink into the swamp uh, uh, if they didn't go fast, as my older brother and I once actually did sink into a swamp when we were driving sort of through it in a kind of primitive four-wheel drive uh, car in the summer of 1970. And we sort of stopped to admire some nice birds and all of a sudden um, uh, we sank. So that's the origin of swamp drivers. So, you know, one is slower, one is faster, one needs a lot of momentum, one needs perfection. Each can become easily blocked um, and one needs more drafts than the other. Um, But I think Ultimately, in the final draft, the prose can be equally perfect. I'm married to a swamp driver, and his first drafts are hardly written in English. 
I mean, the sentences are not complete sentences. You just, you know, every other word is something he's going to fill in later. Um, uh, but boy, by the time he gets to his 10th draft, it's absolutely gorgeous. Zach, are you a diamond polisher or a swamp driver? Well, Anne kind of put us on the spot in the episode. And I actually, I don't remember what I said, but I think I'm in truth, probably a diamond polisher. I would like to be a swamp driver, but I think I'm stuck as a diamond polisher for life. But what about you? Yeah, I think it depends on which stage I'm at. So when I'm first trying to get ideas down, I'm a swamp driver. But like my sentences aren't actually sentences. They're just like thoughts that are <laughs> kind of in an outline type of fashion. And then once I get paragraphs down, then I become a diamond polisher. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm like, wish I could be more of a swamp driver, but I think I'm happy that I'm a combination of the two. So after this whole season, Jess, I'm curious, what, what's your take on essays? Are you are you feeling optimistic about the essay? Are you feeling down on the essay? What, what's, what's your takeaway? Yeah, I would say I'm optimistic, though I do find it interesting that no one selected an essay that's been published very recently. I mean, we started with Virginia Woolf's Death of the Moth. Uh, we have uh, George Tro, something by George Tro. Um, so nothing that's published can t- like right in this present moment. So I wonder what that's saying about the essay, uh, what it's saying about the essay of you know, the mid 20th, late 20th century versus now, um, or if it's just too early to say which essays of today are going to be canonical. I do have a feeling Garth Greenwell's essay that we got to talk about with him is going to be canonical down the line. But how about you, Zach? It's so it's so true, and it's and and one of our guests pointed out at one point as well that we didn't really have we only had one essay that was um, before the twentieth century. So it feels like there was something about the heyday of that kind of mid century moment or the late twentieth century that seemed to be a kind of golden age of the essay, at least for contemporary essayists looking back right now. So I am kind of curious in the next ten fifteen years which essays from our moment are going to kind of last. Yeah, so we're gearing up for season two. Uh, lots to look forward to there. We're speaking with people like Susie Hansen and Claire Bucknell. Um, we're also talking with Shumana Roy and Apoorva Tadapali. We're talking with Michael Clune, uh, Emily Ogden, and Greg Jackson. So just stay tuned. Um, but thanks so much for listening for 2023. And yeah, we look forward to giving you more content in 2024. So as always, until next time, listeners. Mm-hmm.